0: From last year, I had a very good opportunity to study sensory science as my postgraduate um, at Nottingham University. And that kind of gave me a wider view. It made me step back and look at what I do daily, at work and out of work. And I kind of tried to build that into my presentation here of what I've learned so far. Um, And it's given me a wider perspective and just as a disclaimer here, um, I'm not saying what I do is right, and what you know, what I'm telling you, you shouldn't be. I'm not saying that you should, you guys should be following what I do. But at the end of the presentation, I just hope that you guys kind of go away, having the um, wider perspective that I was I did a year ago. Um, so first thing is. It kind of made me realise and question what is quality control and if you ask anyone, any roasters or QC person around the world of what their definition is and how they do it, they'll give you pretty different answers, like anywhere. They'll, They'll have their own method that they really believe in, which is fine, but when you ask them why they do quality control, everyone's answer is the same. The reason why we do quality control is, you know, as simple as, the product that I'm selling, I want to make sure that it's consistent and the product you buy day to day or monthly, you will enjoy it and you'll have no problem. Um, You will find the quality consistent. That's why we do quality control. Um, There isn't a, like, as I said, there, there isn't a set definition, everyone will have a reason why they do quality control. Um, and every shop, every roastery um, who has different philosophies will come to you with why they do this or why they roast. Um, and then I kind of try to, you know, when we talk about quality control, I think the first thing that we think about is really cupping. If, for me as a roaster, when I talk about quality control, it's cupping. Um, so I really tried to find the history of quality control, but or history of cupping. But there's nothing. Now I tried to look in the um, in the, in the um, books, the inter, in, in interwebs, um, asked help on Twitter, but nothing really. And no one really pinpointed me on who actually invented cupping or who actually a company who started cupping. But the closest thing I got was that. Um, cupping actually started in the New York trade of, um, Board of Trade where they had millions of samples coming in each day um, and then the quickest way for them to analyze and um, um, like put a price on the green coffees that they, um, they taste, it was through cupping, and that was the quickest and the most consistent method, which I found interesting. Um, this is a picture from the 1960s. Um, like really serious, like um, suits on, ties. But the funny thing is, if you make that um, the, this picture into a colored picture and replace all those guys with ourselves, maybe Colin and um, one of you guys, and maybe just change the big boiler at the back into an uber boiler, it doesn't really, there, there isn't much difference to what we do these days.
1: Um,
0: you know, it was just, you know, Making you know, making sure. I mean, like, if we were standing in there, this would be a modern QC lab, and it will make a very good Instagram photo. You know, um, the funny thing is, like, this one picture sums up what we do right now. But this, they've been doing this nearly 60 years ago. Um, so if this, um, so what? What we need to think about is. Why do we taste coffee? Why do we taste objectively like this? And what is the fundamental reason that why we taste coffee objectively? So um, I tried to, I asked one of my lecturers um, what is, give me a good definition of a objective tasting, like why do we taste objectively? And I I thought that this um, phrase really summed up why we do, why we cup coffees objectively really well. So it states that the primary function of sensory testing is to conduct valid and reliable tests which provide data on which sound decisions can be made. Like this phrase alone kind of changed how I approach what I do daily, like completely. The word valid and reliable has like changed how I do it and this made me question: Is it are the current steps that I take in my normal day-to-day life in a QC lab valid and reliable? Um, for in, in order for me to take, you know, a data, gather data, and for me to make a sound decisions if I need to change something. So I'm just gonna throw you a scenario here which would happen daily in a roastery. So you roast a batch of coffee and it's not tasting as you want it to be. So what are the protocol you take to analyze and take the necessary measures to improve for next roast? Just have that in your thoughts. And so that goes through in your mind, what do I do if I if I cut this coffee and it's not tasting as how I want it to be? Um, sorry for the wonky arrow, but I've kind of to summarize what usually would happen. This won't happen, I'm just saying in a, a, um, I'm not saying this happens in every roastery, but I think this will happen in most of the roasteries. So you kind of taste the coffee, you cup it, and you flag it up in the cupping bowl. You go, okay, this is kind of roasty. And you kind of correlate that into a cupping score, where you deduct um, your scores of the coffee, maybe on the clarity and the finish. And then you go, okay, there's a problem here, it's quite roasty. And then we'll kind of look back onto our roast curve, roast profile, and other kind of data that you can gather, like the actron reading or the development percentage or the moisture loss. And then you go, okay, there's a maybe we could change this bit here. Maybe we could, you know, um, lower the drop temp. We could maybe increase the um, charge temp. Whatever the change that you need, and you'll note that down. And then for the next roast, you roast it to how you want to change it. And then, fingers crossed, you cup it again, it's better. But when you, when you think about this, is this method valid and reliable? For me, when I look at this, it's really not. Um, the chances of actually maybe um, not going anywhere with it, even though after a change, you've kind of, you know, Depending on the size of your roaster, you've wasted, I don't know, X quantity of coffee trying to change something but then it really didn't work. And then you and then you get confused why? Like why why I, I made the changes but it didn't do anything. Like and you've wasted, I don't know, fifteen kilos of green coffee which costs a lot. So let's think about the val- like method and the val- um the method, the valid and a, a reliable approach of how we actually should do it. So first thing we do you know, for everyone, when, when there's something wrong with the roast, we'll go to the growth profile because that gives us, that's kind of the map of how the coffee has been cooking inside the roaster. But, you know, these days, like there's, we, we get so much data out of roasting, like things like using Cropster, using color track, now using um, development percentage. And there's been a lot of books out, such as like from Scott Rao, giving you a lot of detailed information, how to improve. And we've been like biblically focusing on the numbers and how we roast, the roast curves. But for me, what I realized with that, that's not the only thing that we should be talking about and like thinking about. The thing is like, that is not the only thing that makes, that that we should be um, looking at to change something. Um, Roast Curve, of course, is very important. Knowing and know- having a knowledge and uh, the how beans change chemically and physiologically, it, 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 it's really important, but we never think about ourselves. Like we never think about, are we a valid and reliable tool to taste coffee? You no, know, we've never think about, we, we always think that we're a good taster. You know, we, we know what we're doing and I could, I could tell you if I cup something, there's something wrong with it. So we need to think about, are we a valid and reliable tool to actually objective, ob- objectively taste something like coffee? And for me, what I realized, um, what I realized was that when you cup coffee alone, you, and, um, you cup coffee alone and you, um, you have, you're the only one who makes the changes you're the, you're, the, you're the person who roasted it. You taste it, and you make the change. There's no one that tells you a different um, opinion about a coffee, and you have the like free will of changing anything you want, and then you know you're happy. There's no one arguing against you. But if you are a good cafe or roastery just starting up, and um, you're doing that all alone, and you have more time to spend on each cup and actually analyzing the coffees that's really good but then if you're doing this really good quality stuff one day you will grow you know you will grow and you'll you'll reach a point where you yourself can't handle all the demand of the coffee that needs to be roasted so you will inevitably have to employ someone to roast with you and then your company will grow and you'll have a whole team of people tasting coffees next to you. And the problem starts there, where you get a lot of different opinions on one coffee, on one cupping bowl. And you, because you're kind of the head roaster and you have the final say in everything, you, you can choose to ignore everyone and you, you can just follow what you think it is. And you can tell people that they're wrong of what they're tasting, like, no, you're, you know, this is not bakey, this is fine. You could say that, but what I've noticed was that the, the data that they give, the objective data, the tasting notes that they give, is the starting point of, you know, the change. If, if, if there's people telling you it's roasty and you don't find it that this coffee's roasty, there isn't a, you're not really calibrated there. You're not, you're not like, that's the primary function of, bef- way before um, changing a roast profile, you know, that, that it needs to happen where like, everyone is in the same page, even though the sensory experience that you get from tasting a coffee, it's unique, but when, you, when it becomes to objective tasting you can be dialed in and everyone, even if you have 10 people tasting, they could give you a smaller, narrower range where your QC, I mean, your, the words that you get from each people, they'll they be really like narrow. It won't be like this wide range of, range of words where they give you like 20 different types of tasting note where you don't get it. Um, if so If your tasting data is skewed from right from the start, it's like starting, your, starting to do up your shirt button from the wrong hole and then you get to the top and you realize that you've done it the wrong way and then you will need to go back right down again and then restart. And this is why we kind of need to look like further, We're not, 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 not right now, but you need to think about what if I'm roasting, let's say 300 kilos a week. What about if I roast one tons a week in one year time? You can't have the same QC protocols for, like if you roast 10 tons of coffee and or you roast 100 kilos of coffee, there needs to be a different system that you need to work in to actually have an effective, valid and reliable test where you gather data and then you can make a changes. If it's needed, you, you have more confidence because if you don't have any confidence in the people you work with, the, the palate that they have, that's a major problem, you know? So, I kind of came up with how to kind of train people. Um, not only training people, but also yourself. Um, we're, we're like, I think coffee people could be very um, sometimes naive when we taste things. And we're very, very confident in our own little area. You know, I could be very confident at Square Mile tasting stuff. But when I'm out of my comfort zone, you know, I, I'm, I'm really blind. I don't know what I'm tasting. You know, we, we get really naive in one, what we're tasting, but actually we are very volatile and actually we're not a really good taster. We're very manipulat- manipulative when it comes to tasting. So I'm going to outline two major factors um, that affect our senses and which will affect our result. So there's one assessors and the methodology. So for the assessors, I'm going to outline and quickly um, the there's, there's psychological factors, the physical factors and other factors that uh, could affect us. Um, for example, in the psychological factors, there's the influence from other assessors. And you know, there's always one person in the cupping room where they'll kind of cut down the line and they'll go, ah, oh, this is a disgusting, dirty, natural, where you, know, you haven't even tasted that, but then you already have this preconceived idea of, okay, that's going to be dirty. That's a natural. And this has a major effect on how you score the coffees. And you probably mark down that coffee way more than you would normally if you didn't know that was a natural coffee, you know? And already knowing what coffees are, that has major effect too. If you already know what to expect in the next table or next cup, you already have an idea of like, this coffee's gonna taste like this, but then if it doesn't match your expectations, you'll mark it down heavily. Also stress and mood, if you are very, I don't know, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're very angry about something and you're feeling very down, you don't want to be cupping 20 coffees, you know? And this is, a, this is a scientifically proven fact that if you're under a lot of stress, you'll be tasting things more bitter. Bitterness will like be enhanced with what you taste, which, you know, if you know someone that they come in, storm through the roastery door, and then they don't feel. And you could just see that they don't look well. You know that. The, you know, and, and when you actually look at the cupping result right at the end, their result's is way skewed than other people. Um, so that's a really interesting factor. Expectations such as um, color differences, um, you know, the time when you look at the cupping bowl, and then you scoop the coffee up, and then it looks lighter than the coffee that you had before and you kind have decided, oh, maybe this coffee's underdeveloped, like things like that. S- uh, physical factors, um, one thing like impairment to color and bitter blindness, one in 10 people is a like, proven, one in 10 people is bitter blind, which means they can't taste any bitterness. And if someone goes, oh yeah, every, all of the coffee is not bitter, you know, all the coffee are tasting sweet and clean, they might be bitter blind and there might be a problem, you know? Um, um other issues like having perfume and after to shave, you know, that's a given. Um the methodology, if you know that you're gonna be tasting thirty coffees that day in t- time frame of two hours, just build in rest breaks because when I was in Costa Rica tasting uh, coffees in the exporter's office, I probably tasted sixty coffees in three hours, four hours. And like by the by, our, by the time I hit my third table, everything tasted the same. Like I, I couldn't, I couldn't tell the differences. And building rest breaks because our palates does get fatigued very easily. Timing of cupping, you don't want to be cupping at one hour before your weekend. Having a routine of cupping at, for example, um, Tuesday 9 a.m. and it gives the people the time, and they they know at the, you know when they wake up on Tuesday, okay. I'm gonna, have be, I'm gonna be doing cupping, so I shouldn't be drinking or smoking or um, having food before 9 a.m. Because if you have a random time slot, people won't know that, you know, and then they could have, they could have smoked or drinked or, you know, um, eaten before cupping and then they could, it has a massive effect on the scores. Ensuring consistency. You know, I'm not a fan of breaking the coffee and then stirring. I don't mind, you know, people can stir to the bottom after they break, but if you're gonna do that, just do it for all the bowls. And I see some people in you know one side, people just breaking it, one side people just stirring it really vigorously, like having a regimented system into your cupping and protocols and having a set recipe, making sure that everyone is updated with the recipe, the grind setting, make, um, having a like uh, strict outline of the recipe helps. Um, carryover effects, so making sure that you cleanse your palate much as you can, you know, whilst tasting coffee will help massively with the, um, massively with the consistency of the results that you get. Um, threshold calibration. This is like the one thing I I really believe biblically that will help anyone. Detection threshold is the lowest intensity which a stimulus is perceived so you could have a 10 solution of the indifference concentration Um, starting from weak to um, very concentrated you taste something let's say citric acid and then you taste them from weak to high and you'd outline you'd kind of say when you hit a um, concentration where you actually um, taste the solution you cannot flag that and you would be surprised where a lot of people, some people can be very um, sensitive to citric acid and they could pick that up in very early on with weak um, concentration. And then it shows you where, okay, these two people in our roastery, they're really sensitive to citric acid, but maybe these five people here, they're not. So if you have something like a yoga chef which tastes really lemony, some person, you know, these two people might pick it up really quickly. You know, they go, oh, there's lemon, lemon, lemon but these other five people, they'll be like, oh no, there's not much of a lemon here. And then I'm gonna just deduct it for um, clarity. But you, you, when you, when you, once you see the difference between how spread you are and tasting, you kind of know that those five people who can't taste citric acid very well, they need training on citric acid. And there's a lot of ways to do that. And the same for maybe another honey, like honey sweetness. What's honey sweetness? And people can taste them in different concentrations. Actually, some people might pick it up really early on. Some people might, might not actually pick up any, they can't taste honey sweetness. And like recognition um, threshold um, is where the lowest intensity which uh, stimulus is recognized. So you, you, t- you would have again, ten, 10 different concentration and then you won't tell them what the flavor is. And then they'll taste it from the lowest solution and then they need to tell you what it tastes like and w- and at, at, at which the lowest intensity they taste of. And the difference um, threshold is when the smallest perceivable change in the stimulus, is stimulus intensity. So you could have the 10 solutions again, but there might be um, different um, concentration of a solution and they need to able to pick that up um, easily. And then you know that, you know, because there can be even in cupping, bowl differences in um, cupping, and then trying to pick that up, different um, intensity. Um, So knowing the like using the threshold calibration to see where everyone is, everyone kind of sits, like by knowing your weakness, you know where to start and where to improve on like, on your tasting. And that goes a long way. Um, I know time's running out. and this is just like the tip of the iceberg of like, what I've learned and what I've applied in, in my daily QC. But, you know, as I said, like, n- no one will say, like, no one can tell you how fast you will grow. And cupping five coffees a week of what you like, like roasting five batches a day, and then suddenly a year later, you're roasting 20 batches a day. You can't, and you can't like, this is the same experience I had, like, I was really comfortable, like cupping ten coffees of that we roasted, and that's what we roasted. And then we grew and we grew and grew. And suddenly, I was surrounded by 30, 40 cupping bowls, and I was like, oh, "Holy shit! Like, how do I manage this? I can't do this alone." And then other people joined the roasting team, the QC, um, pro, like the QC lab. And then I realized that, you know, you can have, you can start off with the fanciest equipment, you can start off with crops, so you can start off. Having color track, you know that no doubt that will improve your roast consistency. But if you don't have, if you don't think ahead and valuing other people's sensory data, like if you if you have a, if you um, if you're calibrated from the start and you actually look towards the future, of having trusted people where they where I know that what they taste and what I taste and we're calibrated that goes a long way and, and having a fancy equipment, like what you will realize soon enough that, okay, we always hide behind trial and error. I think we've come a long way and we've learned a lot. And I think there's a lot of things that we can take for us to make less mistakes. Um, and I hope, um, you know, when we think about validity and reliability and everything we do, you, we would look at things differently, I hope. And I've been looking at things like really differently. And it's giving me a confidence in the data that I collect in the road And if I have to say, let's change the drop temperature by 10 degrees, I will have faith in that. What I what I what I change, not like a oh, OK, um, I'm going to change this, but then I'm not really sure about it, you know, and I, I you know most likely I'm going to ruin that batch again and I'll be confused again. So having the confidence and I know there isn't a manual and we're a small industry. There is a manual to tell you what you have to do. Once you gr- once you roast one ton a week, once you roast two tons a week, but it's something that we can avoid making less mistakes. If we start and plan out and planning on the future. Um, yeah. And I hope this presentation was valuable. Um, as I have found, thank you very much.
1: Uh, that was excellent. And very, uh, very interesting. Uh, so, um, cupping is uh, like how frustrating a process is to you because, like, I think I've um, I'm not I'm not a ro- I i am not i am not own a roastery but I'm not a roaster. Mm-hmm. And I do cupping with the staff, and I find that there's always and I found this with Steve as well uh, has been is that yeah. my interpretation of what cupping is I have different goals and interpretations, uh, and and not as much experience cupping and they interpret cups differently completely to two and they see a process behind it Mm -hmm. and how frustrating is that because if you're a green buyer or just a head roaster or if you're a barista or a wholesaler cupping has different goals for all of those people so uh, like how do you find it an extremely frustrating thing or do you you enjoy that that conflict and
0: difference of opinion um i mean like when I when I first started to roast and cup the coffee that I roasted, everything tasted good because I was just excited at the fact that I just roasted that. But then soon enough you kinda get because I, I when I first started roasting I didn't know what I wanted. And only goal was making this tasty. But then that's very vague. And then more I roasted and more I cut. I've realized that if you don't have a goal, you know, if you like, ask the roaster, what's your goal on this specific coffee? A lot of people don't know. Like a lot of people were just saying a vague term of making it tasty, so that when I when, when a cafe pulls a shot of this coffee, then everyone enjoys it. But if you, like for me, one thing that was very frustrating was I cut the coffees and then it's tasting good, but when I actually taste the coffees and pull it as espresso, it's not tasting as nice. And I didn't see any inter like if it if the coffee tasted good on the copping table, it didn't really necessarily mean it would taste good in the bar, you know? And and vice versa. Yeah, and vice versa.
1: And sometimes you have something that, that cooks really badly. Yeah. And then you pull shots and you're like, this is actually pretty awesome. Yeah.
0: And I think earlier on in this year. When the whole craze of the ek shots were, you know, like everywhere in, around the world, I was so excited. Like, oh, I could pull the shot longer, which means maybe I could compromise. Like, I could roast it slightly lighter. I could pull sixty gram shots, and it would be amazing. So I, I did that. Like, I I I, I, roast, I compromised what I how I roasted. I cut it. It was tasting good, and I and I pulled a shot of it, and it was tasting amazing. But then I soon realized that we're a wholesale coffee roaster. We don't own a bar. And people started to go, "Um, the coffees are like, you know, channeling a bit. I'm like, no, it's tasting nice. You know, do 19 grams in, do 60 grams out. And I realized that these customers own an anthem where they put in 20 grams in and they pull out 36 grams out and it won't work. And you know, you're the ego of the coffee roaster i kind of realized that oh like this is what i think this is amazing but this is not what the customer wants yeah but then the customer is the people who bring you money you know but you are like you're
1: in 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 a in a, in a in one way like an admirable way to do this would be to roast your coffee for an ideal scenario where coffee has been made in this specific way mm. but ha, like that's Every shop is completely different and has different preferences. Yeah. A good example, Ben Kaminsky came to 3 three to do his talk about EK43 and the long shots and all and I was like, this is pretty good. I like, but like, this is a really uh, kind of case specific piece of feedback that I have for you. And he's yeah. like, yeah, said, so now the espresso is like, let's say he was putting 20 grams in and he's pulling like 60 grams out. Okay, and I was like, that's fine. Now I have 60 grams of liquid in a six ounce cup. Mm. And. If somebody orders a cappuccino, it's going to look ugly as hell. And the the sourness that comes in to a milk-based drink with that long of an espresso isn't really that pleasant. And um, that's not going to work. And he was kind of looking at me going, that's really stupid and really clever at the same time, and I have no answer. Because it's like, where do you, Okay, for you, where do you, What? circumstance do you roast coffee for like is it just for what will sell the most or is it for the ideal scenario or somewhere in between
0: i think i had this whole that my own ideal world was you know everyone pulling long shots and having like really good drinks but then i soon realized that they don't do that and then i tried to have to work out the middle ground of because i don't want to be roasting coffee and then not satisfied with the result, you know? I don't wanna be like, I roasted this, and then people will be happy, but I'm not happy with it, you know? So I I, I really want, I try to um, find a middle ground where they're happy and I'm happy. And when I try to do that, this is when, like, you know, and I I cup it, like, I I have so many different feedbacks. And trying to find that middle ground of like being happy with not only me, but we have two two other roasters, and we have my bosses and other people who cut with us. Trying to process like 20 people's ideas and then making them all happy, making all our staff happy, making myself happy, and making the customers happy. I found that as an impossible kind of process in the job. Yeah. But when I when I like going back to talk, when I actually trying to be calibrated with other people and with each other and having more conversation with the customers of our recommendations and what we do, that kind of helped them try to find a middle ground and I think that helped. Yeah. And do you,
1: do you think coffee brewing in London and in, in the, the greater uh, UK and, and further field, it, it's changing towards a certain, it's a kind of changing away from what it was two or three years ago, like, like the espresso's getting longer, that, people are being more analytical with
0: their specials? I mean, like, I know Rock now, they are really on it, on like, they even green grade, and they have like massive data that they collect on roasting, I and mean, extraction and solubility. But, you know, I think we are still, I don't I see a massive change, you know? compared to two, three years ago. Maybe compared to five years ago, we are playing it slightly more longer, maybe to two to one ratio. But I think, no, I don't, I don't, I don't see the massive change, but I, I do realize that people are more, they, they will email us if one, like, if, even if something doesn't taste right, mm-hmm. and they are being more critical on what they taste. So I think that's a good thing. Yeah. yeah.
1: Hey, do we have any questions out there? a question questions, sign None, Dale does have a question now. One in the back here, okay. Thanks. Um, I just wanna go back to what you were saying about um, intensity of perception. So say for example, you sort of tested yourself, you made concentrations of citric acid, so you found that you could taste, like you perceived like a gram of citric acid per liter, but you couldn't perceive half a gram per liter. Have you found a way that you could train yourself to get better at doing that, or do you know a way of getting better at
0: yeah, perceiving um, things? I think um, just just training, trying to trying to perceive that thing, and even in like 0.1 mole per liter, if you keep training yourself and you you, you have to kind of think. I'm gonna get better, and you will taste it. It's like you know, it's like when you first started coffee, when I first started coffee, and um, Ben Townsend said this coffee tastes like chocolate, I was like, this is bullshit, like it doesn't taste like chocolate. But you have to train yourself, you know? Like, like tasting coffee, like when, when you, when I first tasted the Kenyan, and actually tasted like black currants. That didn't come up like that in a day, but I had to taste it a lot and a lot and a lot. And it comes to training with anything weird. One good thing about ourselves is that even though we're very uh, manipulative in tasting, we are a fast learner and we will learn quickly and we have a good memory. Um, So the training on different concentration and just doing that a lot will help you a lot and you you will will be able to um, taste that citric acid even in the smallest concentration.
1: How important do you think it is for baristas to be involved in, in cupping and sensory uh, analysis, like you're describing? Say, say that again. How, how important do you think it is for baristas um, to be involved in cupping and sensory analysis and to engage at roasters?
0: I think it's I think it's a fundamental thing that for the baristas, I mean, they sell the coffees, you know. I mean, for, for, for me as a roaster, I, when, I, when, I, when I cup coffees, I, try, I don't look for the good things, I look for the bad things, you know, in a way for me to in, uh, improve. But for the baristas, they need to pick out the good things, you know, so that's the difference between the objective of the cupping. But, you know, if they can't pick out um, the good things, the good qualities about the coffee that they serve, you know they, they can't really be passionate about the coffee you know like you need to be able to taste that coffee to the descriptors and that will you know that's that's how you become passionate and talk about the coffee to customers and there's a big difference to that and i think one thing that we really lack in specialty coffee um is people don't know i mean as a barista i wish that i knew certain things about roasting or roast defects like what baked coffee is what the development is, and if, if if a cafe, if it's possible to work with a, with a roaster to you know know what the de- roast defect is, so that you know you 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 know anyone would have the time when they were pulling shots, and then it doesn't just work out right. You do everything, but it just tastes crap. But it probably is a roasting taint, mm. but then you'd have no idea about it, it you know. But like having having something. Making sure that baristas also cup and the the knowledge base that they have in cupping and roast defects, I think it has a you know, a long term um, thing positivity in. Yeah, working the ball. And then the flip side of that is that
1: we, we had, I won't say who it is. we had a, a, a barista working at a shop that we were supplying who learned the term underdeveloped. He yeah. must have read it in a book somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, for, for a couple of weeks, or like a few, five, six, seven weeks, it was like, oh, I think this is slightly underdeveloped. And you're yeah. like, do you think that? And why did that happen? Because it was underdeveloped and it was like, it, it's, it comes to a place where they're saying to you, I want to be involved and I'd like to yeah. engage yeah. you more and learn a bit more. Uh, do you find it, like, at the other end, do you get, like, uh, useless feedback that's quite frustrating and difficult to deal with, or is it always that you're like,
0: okay, let's turn this into a positive? I mean, we do get feedback sometimes saying, people who, uh, as you said, people would read books and they would have attended Scott Ralph's seminar and then they'll question our roasting and they'll be asking about can I have your roast profile and I'm like, I understand where you're coming from, but, you know. We. I mean, it's good that people are questioning and trying to learn things, but for me, I think that there just needs to be a better way to for people to be educated better. Um, What is that way? Sorry. What is that way? So Uh, if um,
1: Johnny Burris still wants to go out and educate himself, so he can
0: actually um, maybe one thing I could drop here is that I am working on a project. which is gonna be related to tasting coffee defects that can be done easily anywhere in a coffee bar, roastery. Hopefully that will be developed pretty soon that you could buy and you could do it anywhere around the world. Cool. And because I found a huge gap in that where people don't know what undeveloped is, people don't know what baked is, and hopefully for them, they can relate to coffee that they cup, and they go, "Okay, this is not on development. Yeah. And then people not, not just throwing things like terms like "underdeveloped," that your coffee baked. You know, hope, hopefully we get better education out of it. So, yeah,
1: I don't think it's a battle we're ever going to win, but yeah, yeah, it's, a, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. definitely improving yeah. as you go along. Uh, that was really fascinating. Thank you so much. Thanks, Joe. Psycho Park.